Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be joining us uh, on this uh, wonderful day. Hey, we are here to welcome you to this edition of A Reason for Hope, our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. That's where you come in, of course. It's your questions on the Bible that we are here to answer. So feel free to jump on in with any question about a particular verse or two in the Bible that you'd like to explore, maybe an issue uh, of debate that has come up in uh, your own circle of Christian friends, or or maybe even dealing uh, with uh, questions that you get from skeptics, uh, people on the outside in looking at God's love these days. We'll be happy to answer any of those. The events of today, the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we are all over that. But uh, it's uh, your questions that determine our content each and every day. We're not here to try to determine what we think you need to hear about. We want to respond to the questions that you've got. Being uh, that it's the first day of the week at the time of the airing of this broadcast, we would also invite you to uh, take advantage of what we like to call uh, Memory Monday, one of the great ways that you can write on your heart uh, the biblical lessons you learned over the weekend and maybe thinking back uh, about the sermon you sat under on uh, Sunday and a question or two maybe that has arisen uh, in the passage that you went through, maybe some things your pastor said, some issues that came up. Uh, We'll be happy to answer those questions. And in the process, by thinking back on those things, Uh, Hopefully God will uh, write those truths on your heart and on your mind so they stick a little bit more. Uh, We call it Monday morning amnesia sometimes. Uh, Someone will ask you, uh, what did your pastor talk about on Sunday? And uh, sometimes we draw a blank. We completely forget about it. So uh, repetition, good thing uh, to uh, allow the Lord to be able to uh, make those truths Uh, more personal to you. So uh, think back on that message and uh, maybe even throw us a question or two here on Memory Monday. Sean, how can uh, people get those questions to us? Well, if you're joining us online, you are doing so at calvarychristianfellowship.com. That is our church website and where you can join us face-to-face with our comment sections on the right side of the screen. So that would be left to my summation. Also note as well, uh, if you want to watch any of the messages on archive or broadcasts or any combination of the two, They will be available on and off hours uh, for those who want to join us at any time. Note that at our website, again, Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, Christian Fellowship of Tucson, will, of course, be our outreach ministry for you. And if any social media platforms uh, treat us the way they treat most these days, uh, that will be your main fallback position. And note as well that if you join us face-to-face, you'll also have access to our phone number, 1-877-556-1212, and our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Proper spelling will be provided for everyone who wants to make sure they've got those things down and can send their questions to us at any time when we aren't on the air. Note, if you are still able to use social media, and us included, 
We have a Facebook account at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson as well, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, but we want to encourage as much traffic and familiarity with our website as possible because, uh, well, you just can't depend on people these days. So if you want to join us live, that is where we will be, and if you are able to join us on social media, those will also have archive messages, but we want to encourage you, go to our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and of course, the Watch Live tab will be available for you there. So without further ado, why don't we start off in a word of prayer? We'll start with our famous uh, Bible contradiction this week. Uh, I wish I could get excited for it, but it'll be fairly straightforward, which is easy for you to deal with. But of course, not uh, taking a step farther, even simple ones without the Spirit equipping us. Let's do that. Yeah, Father, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to explore your word uh, over the next few minutes. We pray that you would guide the conversation. You would lead us into those areas of uh, your, your, your timeless treasure, which is your word. Uh, that we need to hear about. I pray uh, that even uh, the questions that might seem straightforward, might not seem all that uh, new or challenging to us, would uh, find fertile soil and maybe even uh, be a life changer for someone that is happening across uh, this broadcast and webcast. And Lord, uh, as always, we pray that your name would be honored, your word would go forth in a way that that is glorifying to you. Uh, Father, anoint and empower Sean and I to speak your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth, as you, through the ministry of your spirit, in Jesus' name, bring glory to you through this time, focusing in on your timeless truth. In Jesus' name, amen. It is true. All right, so just as advertised, this is not a complicated one. Uh, This is the supposed contradiction of Jonah being swallowed by a fish or a whale. In Jonah 1 and verse 17, it says fish, but in Matthew 12 and verse 40, it apparently says a whale. Now, I uh, took the time, and I encourage all of you to as well look up the passage that supposedly has this contradiction, because we will acknowledge that uh, scientifically a fish and a whale are two different things and in no sense apart from their uh, environment do they have anything similar about them but when they make the comparison interestingly enough i'm going to be reading through let's uh, let's go through 8 because that's an odd number uh, different translations of Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, because we'll just note and take their word for it. Jonah 1.17, we'll verify in a moment, but Jonah 1.17 says it's a fish. Matthew 12 and verse 40 says it's a whale. So this is Matthew chapter 40, or 12 and verse 40. Matthew doesn't have 40 chapters. This is the New International Version. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, oh no, Here's the New Living Translation. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, in the English Standard Version it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. uh, Here's the New King James Version. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Here's the New American Standard. For as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster. We're not getting anywhere. The only passage and translation that says in in the belly of a whale is the King James translation. Now, why did they do that? Well, it was a uh, colloquialism that was prevalent in the uh, 1611 Elizabethan English. The actual Hebrew word dog uh, can mean a uh, large sea creature, really of any kind. It usually describes a fish. 
But uh, because uh, we're not really dealing, in a sense, with uh, someone worried about uh, making distinctions between species, rather the fact that a large sea creature, we are not told specifically what kind, swallowed Jonah and uh, deposited him back on land, the most important thing is that that, in fact, happened. Uh, in fact, uh, when you take a look at Jonah chapter 2, this is an additional uh, bonus uh, uh, fact for you to consider, uh, no additional charge. Obviously, the way Jonah describes his experience in the great fish, he describes going down to the depths of Sheol. Uh, there are those uh, like the great Bible commentator J. Vernon McGee who believe that Jonah may have perished in the belly of the great fish and then was resurrected later on, that he had a supernatural experience being on the other side and God brought him back because obviously his time and his mission had not come to an end. Could God have done that? Certainly. Could God have, have preserved Jonah in the uh, intestinal tract of a large dog, whether that is a whale? There are certain whales, uh, particularly whales of the baleen variety, that would have the capability of being able to swallow someone. Sperm whales, apparently, uh, we have seen uh, reports of uh, whalers who were in the process of uh, dealing with uh, sperm whales who uh, were actually swallowed and then regurgitated back up on deck after a time. Uh, certainly is a possibility that that could happen. Certainly uh, would be a possibility that someone could survive for a time under those circumstances. Certainly this uh, individual from the 1840s who called himself a modern-day Jonah who had that experience uh, was able to do so and lived to tell the tale. I mean, he's not the only one, by the way. It is rare, thus why we call it not normal, but nonetheless survivable, and not just in regards to whales, but given that we're allowing the existence of a supernatural God, he can make this work. Yeah, and uh, God can certainly do uh, anything he chooses to do. Uh, the interesting thing about Matthew chapter 12 is that uh, Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, dog, in Hebrew, uh, and again, uh, the uh, the word ichthus that we get our term, uh, you know, the uh, the Christian fish, same term that is used in Greek, uh, not specific to a whale or a particular genus or species of a fish, but generally speaking, the most important thing to focus in on is the fact that uh, Jonah was, in a sense, a living preview of Jesus' actual physical death and resurrection. Which that's, was why, the, that's why people like J. Rory McGee would say that he actually died and was resurrected after that time. And that was the context of Matthew 12.40. But noting in the uh, humorous uh, presentation of this initially, the point being made is if someone comes to you and says, well, in this translation specifically, all other translations render it as fish, just like Jonah 1.17 and 2.1 and chapter 2 and verse 10 and others uh, mention it as a fish because the Hebrew word dog was very straightforward. If they are going to challenge you on that, then maybe you can get into another good conversation about, well, why is it that the only translation you want to talk about is the one with the disparity, and even then, kind of superficial, don't you think? No one rejects a personal relationship with Jesus because of the distinction between a whale and a fish. But when it comes down to the real heart of the matter, make sure that you're talking to someone when you have these conversations with the caveat, if I could answer that question, 
would you care? Yeah. Could we uh, get yeah. back would, to the would person? It make, would, it, would it make any difference to you? Hey, uh, interesting question uh, from Gary on our uh, website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, great to see so many of you migrating over there. By the way, we also have a Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson app that you can download where you can watch this broadcast each and every day uh, and uh, be able to access our verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible, all kinds of of great resources to deepen your understanding and knowledge of God's Word and to connect up with what's going on here at the Ministry of the Church. But at uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com, we are live streaming the broadcast. And Gary writes, and I think this is an interesting question I want to throw it out to you, Sean. I wonder why. He said, I have a uh, friend of a friend who has has high-functioning autism and schizophrenia. It's so bad, all he does is bang his head against a wall and hit his head, but somehow he is saved. He's done this his whole life and probably will if God doesn't heal him. What is God's plan for people like this? Well, I guess you'd have to ask them individually because schizophrenia, autism or not, you have to consider the fact that whether their brain's narrow or whether it processes sound and light differently than other people, they are still human. Uh, Complications and mental disorders are a difficult topic for a lot of people because you look around at people, say, not just with mental, but even physical handicaps. So Corey Ten Boom is another example of this, not in a mental sense, but in a physical one, paralyzed from the neck down, I believe. No, Corey Ten Boom was the uh, Holocaust survivor. You're thinking of Joni Erickson Tata. Thank you. Yep. I know <laughs> I hear these names on the radio, but yeah. the point still stands. With a physical handicap, she was able to, in spite of her physical ailment, her, her physical handicap, uh, still reach out to God and make light of the fact that in spite of her limitations, there are still opportunities. She's taken up painting. She's taken up a tremendously impactful ministry. We are hearing about her still yeah, today. Johnny and Friends uh, is the name of her ministry. It gets uh, wheelchairs and uh, support equipment to uh, people all over the world who struggle with paraplegia. So. Yeah, but uh, noting then that point and tying it back to the mental handicaps that people have, uh, while I can't speak for autism, I can speak for schizophrenia. It's not fun. It's a very, I wouldn't even uh, go so far as to say distorted. It's a very frightening way of looking at the world. And it takes a lot of therapy to cope. When it uh, comes down to it, uh, some people need medication to function. Others haven't. But it does come at a price. And when people would ask, well, why wouldn't you choose medication? Or uh, perhaps even on a more serious note, would you regret being born if it meant you were spared this sort of pain? And I think the best way to respond in light of what other influences would want me to say is in Second Corinthians chapter 12 and yeah. verse 7, where Paul the Apostle, dealing with his own physical or mental or spiritual, whichever take your pick, handicap that he wanted removed, he made this conclusion. Lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So Paul acknowledges, hey, I know myself well enough to know I would be very proud of these sort of things. So something was allowed into my life that uh, gave me a good reality check. And note the thorn in his flesh. What's the word in Greek that he uses there? Something irritating? It, it, it literally means a tent stake. Oh, so this isn't a small thing yeah. to make yeah, this isn't of. just, ooh, I've got something in my contact lenses. It, it was devastating. Yeah, and noting that point as well, going into compulsive episodes, banging your head on things, 
take your pick, quadriplegia, whatever it's going to be, you can note the Bible is acknowledging these sort of things. But note his conclusion. He prayed three times with the Lord that it might depart from me. And in verse 9, he said, this is Jesus speaking, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, sufficient, that's a fun word. Uh, Definitely not one that we like to make light of, especially in the state of emotional frustration. But sufficient, what does that mean? Well, it certainly means that uh, God was going to give him the ability to be able to handle one day at a time the challenges he was facing. Enough, in a word. Yeah. My grace is enough for you. So then following up on that, he clarifies, for my strength, not mine, my strength, Jesus speaking, is made perfect or complete in weakness. Here is Paul's conclusion. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, verse 10, I take pleasure in infirmities. And not just in a physical and immediate sense in infirmities, but even outside sources, reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, when it comes to any physical, mental, social, moral, or religious struggle, we're going to find out very quickly that we can't handle it on our own. When you're being mocked for your faith, for doing the right thing, anyone who's genuinely experienced that knows how frustrating it is, how outright desperate it is. And they end up in a place where they're asking the most unhelpful question ever asked in maybe second most unhelpful question is, where did I find my keys? Well, maybe uh, where you left them. That's not helpful either. But the the second most unhelpful question in all of humanity, why me? And the response isn't given. Instead, Paul says, what? What is going to be done in the midst of this? Christ is glorified. And he makes the point, I will boast in my infirmities so that whose strength can be manifested in me? When we are going through these things, these outright desperate things, these things that even the recipients of, and especially the recipients of, because you note in this culture, well, listen to the victims. Okay, listen to the victim here. Don't kill me. Don't abort me. Don't make the decision for me that I would rather not go on living if it means I have the opportunity daily to, and pay close attention to this because we all have our own struggles, mental, physical, spiritual, external, whatever, things to deal with. But I can't deal with them on my own. We'll all come to that point eventually where we won't have the capacity or ability to deal with them on our own. On the other hand, he does. And the more that I learn to... Wait, isn't this the whole purpose of the Christian life, to learn every single day how to depend more on him and his strength rather than my own? Pretty much. So it's almost as if people with autism or schizophrenia or any combination or deviation from the two— Manic depression, you name the diagnosis, yeah. —are almost at an an advantage because they have a more tangible or more dramatic and a more immediate reminder daily to say— I can't handle this on my own. Lord, help me. Whether you struggle with maybe an area of sin or not, you can say, Lord, help me. Whether you're dealing with persecution from family members or from your culture and friends, Lord, help me. It's all the same solution, even if the problems are a variety. It's not an opposition to salvation, and I think the mindset behind this could tie nicely into, I believe it's John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, where a man who was born 
with a physical handicap, a blind condition, was asked who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus said the same thing that Paul concluded, neither this man nor his sin parents, but that God, uh, his power would be manifest in him, that his glory would be demonstrated through him. What was the exact phrase? Uh, That the works of God should be revealed in him. So, work of God. Um, You might look at your computer screen or be uh, staring at your radio and hearing this voice and saying, you don't sound insane. Well, that's something to be thankful for, but I don't take credit for that. You can bear testimony that when I'm going through episodes, it's not a pretty sight, but we've learned to deal with it. Likewise, people with uh, low-functioning autistic children, they'd say it's not an easy thing to go through, but they still love the kid. Now, if a parent like this guy or those guys were able to love their kids even in spite of a mental handicap, do you think the perfect parent could? Do you think that maybe the perfect parent could not only have a purpose for their life, whatever it may be, even in spite of those handicaps? So, again, repeating the point and clarifying from all three angles, what about the victim? Listen to the victim. Um, I learned to depend more on Jesus in the same way that we all need to. Okay, well, what about just conceptually? Is this a curse from God? Not according to Jesus. We have a direct example in John chapter 9. Okay, well, what about just in general? Uh, Do you think that the fact that there's difficulties means that God would somehow give up on them because of these infirmities and the natural roadblocks they make to normal human behavior? Not philosophically, scripturally, theologically, no. So... Regarding your friend with autism and schizophrenia, and again, full sympathies, it's not an easy life, but it is still a life, and God can use them whether they're high-functioning brains, high-functioning bodies, or not. And we need to be careful when we go into the mindset of, well, me just conceptualizing the idea of not knowing whether what I see and what I hear and what I feel is in line with reality. I just don't know how I'd function like that. Exactly. We weren't supposed to, and you at this moment don't have to. But for speaking to someone who does have to struggle with that, I have learned to depend on the Lord. And that is something that we all need to do in our own ways and for our own reasons. It doesn't make me subhuman, and it doesn't make me sub-Christian either. I think that would be the best way to answer the point. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just interesting how uh, we're all kind of dealt a different deck of cards uh, in this life uh, because of the fall of man. Uh, you know, things like schizophrenia, things like autism, uh, things like children being born blind, these sort of things were not part of God's initial creation. Everything was very good. But when man fell, God warned us that dying we would die. Uh, in other words, not just physical deaths would come into this creation, but uh, not just spiritual death, that is separating us from God, but because we are separated from God, The entire creation, we are told, groans together in travail until now. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 says that. That doesn't mean just the uh, animal kingdom, that there's predation, and uh, you watch the, uh, the, the documentaries on on, say, Netflix about what happens out in the Serengeti and you see how brutal and violent it is. Uh, It's not just that. It's that the whole very good creation was subjected to what the Scripture says, futility. Uh, In other words, uh, our DNA itself uh, began to be uh, corrupted. Uh, You know, there are copying errors, mutations, and these sort of things manifest themselves in different ways, sometimes at birth. 
Uh, we ratify these things, obviously, by giving in to our fallen sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And uh, the rest, as they say, is human history. But what an awesome thing, especially this time of year, uh, to know that God hasn't given up on us. You know, at our Christmas Eve service, we're going to be uh, talking a bit uh, about uh, the message that the angel had to share uh, with uh, the shepherds, the uh, first announcement of Christmas, and just the profound insights that we can get into the fact that God hasn't given up, not just on his creation, but uh, those people that he has created and loved. And uh, that uh, the fact that Jesus came and lived in this fallen creation, and the fact that he became a man and went through the whole realm of human experiences, he's been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. You know, the, the interesting thing in terms of um, those who struggle with mental illness, struggle with physical illnesses, we've seen some different people uh, on our website over here talking about the different challenges uh, that they faced, uh, just the uh, continual pain that some people go through on a daily basis, but it drives them uh, to be closer to God. You know, the, the amazing thing is God can redeem all of this. Uh, this momentary light affliction, uh, the scripture says, is working out in us an eternal weight of glory. Now, it doesn't seem momentary to us. It doesn't seem light to us. But I guarantee you, when we stand before the Lord someday and see the rewards that are going to come our way for staying faithful in the midst of all of these things, it's going to blow our minds. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing is this. There is suffering in this life, but God can even redeem suffering and use it for a powerful goal. If you want to really dig deep into all this, I highly recommend uh, taking a look at uh, our uh, good friend, Pastor Pete's uh, sermon that he preached yesterday at Calvary uh, Christian Fellowship, especially the second hour. He talks about the nobility of suffering, the fact that God sanctifies suffering, the fact that God gives meaning to even suffering in this world. And uh, I think it would, if you're out there and you are suffering, especially this time of year, it would be a very uh, good an encouraging message for you to hear. You can take a listen to that at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, just uh, take a look at our sermon archive, and I think you'll find out a real encouragement as well. All right. Um, here's a question from forthcoming Zach, who wants to know, was Adam's skull or Goliath's skull buried at Golgotha? Thank you. Um, uh, no that to would the be... former, yes to the latter. Let me clarify the second claim, and then I'll give some details about the first. They believe it's in uh, second Sam- or was it first Samuel 17 or second? First. First Samuel yeah. 17. Um, <laughs> this is a hilarious account because uh, tying it into the um, event of David and Goliath. I know you've all probably heard the Sunday school retellings of him, you know, killing the Philistine with the sling and uh, the uh, supposed Bible contradictions that have come from that uh, watered-down version when he knocked down Goliath for certain with the stone. He verified, yeah. yeah, he verified the death with his own sword. He cut off his head, and it says in the account that he carried the head around with him for a few days. But uh, just, I, I just get a, a big grin on my face, not just because I'm crazy, that's true, but um, regarding the uh, amusing picture of a, a little kid <laughs> walking around with a giant head like that for a few days, obviously there would come a time where you would need to dispose of it. And uh, according to the passage, this is in verse 50. Let's start in verse 52. Um, We know what he did with it. Now, the men of Israel and Judah rose and shouted, pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley to the gates of Ekron, and and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shireh. 
even as far as Gath and Ekron. So they were pursued all the way back to their cities. The children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. Now, verse 54, that's the setting. This is what happened with Goliath. David took the head of the Philistine, brought it in Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And when David saw, or Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, whose son is this youth? And he says, as your soul lives, king, I don't know. He said, acquire whose son it is. Now, noting he verifies him as the Bethlehemite, but uh, verse 57 notes, when David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took, brought him for Saul, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So this uh, amusing portrayal of him running around with the head and still having it after the battle is... uh, uh, very unique one. Now, when we continue on into the following passages, David uh, not only having a place in Saul's court as his musician, but clarifying a position, I guess, as a celebrity in Israel, we're told that he buried it at Golgotha, and I want to make sure that I can support that chapter and verse. Maybe you can uh, verify that in a minute. But um, when it comes to the place of the skull, the reason why it was named that significantly wasn't just because of Goliath's skull, but because the mountain itself looks a bit like the uh, cranium or the cavalry. Even to this day, cavalry. Yeah, if you go to uh, the uh, the site of Gordon's Calvary, where the garden tomb is, you can also see, and it's really interesting because the, the site is actually uh, in a uh, parking lot behind a, a convenience store where uh, there's a number of buses that pick people up over there. It's hardly what I would call uh, a, a shrine. But uh, one of the reasons that uh, it's called Gordon's Calvary is because, uh, especially back in the 1800s, and they've got pictures of it from the 1800s, there's been you know, additional erosion and things like this that have happened on the site. But boy, you look at those pictures from the 1800s, and it looks for all the world like a uh, stone feature that looks like a skull. And that was especially true 3,000 years ago. But when we're talking about the uh, issue of Adam's skull, and I'll continue looking. I remember the uh, statement, but not the citation for the event. So we'll make sure we don't end this without verifying at Calvary. Do you remember what passage it was where it notes he buried the skull there? Um, I don't recall a specific passage that mentions that. Well, let me uh, give me a few more minutes to let my brain cells uh, abuse each other, and then maybe we'll have a direct response to that. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to stand corrected, but these sort of things like uh, Goliath's skull being buried at Golgotha, um, you know, it's entirely possible that Goliath's skull, because David kept it around, but remember, David went on the run. Uh, from King Saul. He didn't probably carry that uh, thing along with him. The sword that was used to kill Goliath was kept in the uh, tabernacle, and uh, getting that sword uh, caused uh, a a real uh, devastating uh, after effect when King Saul found out that uh, the the priest there gave uh, not only uh, physical aid, the showbread, but Goliath's sword uh, to David. We're really not uh, told that the skull of Goliath was there. I think it's somewhat 
uh, legendary. I think it's somewhat of a stretch to say it was buried at the Golgotha site, but I'm willing to stand corrected. Okay, maybe it was a tradition, but I do know that the uh, carrying of the skull in David's possession was a thing, and you can note that in 1 Samuel 7 and 54. But as far as Adam's skull being there, that is entirely a Jewish tradition and not verified at all. The story essentially goes that when Adam was buried, it was on Mount Moriah in a commentary about Genesis 22, the significance of that site, and why did God set that place aside for Abraham to offer his son. Now, the uh, concerns, obviously, I have with this tradition and the facts behind it was because it was meant to be a response to the Christian claim that Genesis 22 was a foreshadowing of Christ, whereas the Jewish, and not the Jewish in a traditional sense, the Jewish in the uh, not Christian sense. The hostile to Christianity Jewish uh, answer to Christian claims about this was written just for that sake, not because the text supported it, not because there was there any history behind it. The rabbis that wanted to discredit Christianity made this response to dismiss Genesis 22 as messianic. But note this point, that when uh, they made the claim that Shem buried Adam at what the place called Calvary or Moriah or Golgotha, the reason was then later extrapolated upon that why God chose this site for Adam's burial, and it was uh, kind of bizarre when they made the claim that God wanted the sacrifice of Isaac to take place. It was so that the blood that was shed would atone for Adam as the head of all mankind, and the blood seeping through the rocks and so forth would provide that sprinkling or that atonement that was traditional in the Jewish sources. And by the way, biblical in that regard, sacrifices were sprinkled with blood to provide cleansing or atonement. Now, uh, continuing on with the point, and remember, entirely uh, factually unsupported. This was made in a response to Christianity looking forward, and they say, no, it was looking back. They continued on that point in these commentaries from the rabbis to say that when Adam's body was buried there and the significance therein, Roman Catholics then built on this tradition and saying, well, why was Jesus crucified there? So that the blood of his sacrifice would fall from the cross and land on man's legal head. Yeah, and and, and some significant early church fathers taught that, like Chrysostom and Origen and and others, and it was in reference to this Jewish myth. But of but, course, but there were the the main uh, uh, school of thought among the rabbis was that uh, Adam wasn't buried in Jerusalem or anywhere near it. He was buried in the cave of Machpelah, uh, the same place that Abraham bought and uh, asked used, his body to be buried there as yeah, well, and, yeah. and Sarah's body, and and so on. So uh, we really there, there's nothing in the scripture that would indicate that uh, Adam's tomb was below where Jesus was crucified. And, you know, when you take that point of view, you run into a number of different problems because, again, there's still a big debate as to where specifically Jesus was crucified. Uh, The Church of the Holy Sepulcher, the Garden Tomb, uh, you know, name another alternative. People are always coming up with kind of different theories. That he went to so, India and was buried there, that he went to Ethiopia and was buried there, that he went somehow to the United States. I don't know. Well, but, uh, you know, I mean, from the sublime to the ridiculous. But, but you know, those two main schools of thought as far as where Jesus was actually buried, uh, usually it's going to come down to those two things. And if we can't agree on that, we can't be 100% certain on that, 
where Adam was buried, it, it's simply not stated in Scripture. And so, you know, they say, well, you know, wouldn't it have been, you know, the, the, the height of symbolism for the last Adam's blood to be shed in the same place where the first Adam died? Um, okay. Wouldn't it be the height of symbolism for the Star Wars sequel trilogy to be decent? Let's deal with reality. Yeah, exactly. So we, we really, you know, the, the thing is we really just don't know. And when, uh, when you know, we don't know, sometimes uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it sounds like such a great theory. And then you plaster some Renaissance art on the top of that and stained glass images in some churches uh, you know, it, it just, uh, I think, uh, removes us a step from the real issue that Jesus, in fact, died and that he rose from the grave. Where specifically that happened in Jerusalem uh, is a question for debate. And, I mean, even among Calvary pastors, I really believe that it was at Gordon's Calvary. Uh, you know, I think uh, the garden tomb looks like the best possible site, but I know other Calvary pastors who really believe that it was at the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they have every right to be wrong. So, yeah, it's uh, not a pleasant place. Yeah. I remember now the reason why they would conclude he was buried at Calvary was because in First Samuel 17 uh, it mentions that he brought the head to Jerusalem, and they assumed that it was buried there. Um, also note as well, again, speculation, I think that would be dismissed because it says that he still had it. We don't know what he did with it. But uh, the uh, significance of the place, the skull, and uh, whether or not Adam was buried there, that is Jewish tradition and not based on biblical history, the affirmations of church fathers would have been steeped in this, and that's where the majority of those polemical responses came from. But, uh, yeah, just a note when we hear these things, and you saw live on air, we were kind of tripping over ourselves trying to sort out which uh, place and where we have heard these things, but we can't verify them. Trust but verify is good when it comes to anything, including this. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I just don't really go to bat for any of these things that aren't specific. Even if uh, Goliath's skull was brought to Jerusalem, we don't know where it was, what happened to it, um, you know, whether it was stored. If it was important for us to have Goliath's skull, we'd have it. Yeah, and again, the claims of, oh, we found Goliath's skeleton in some archaeological uncovering and stuff, don't bother with these things. When it comes to what we know from the Bible, let it stick to the Bible. But when it comes to uh, traditions, just make sure that we don't uh, give them far, uh, enough credit where it's not even justified to do so. Um, another um, question? Yeah, a uh, couple questions here. Uh, question again uh, from our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com. What is uh, biblical hermeneutics all about? Well, <laughs> I, I remember uh, when I was thinking about going into the ministry, uh, I uh, went out to lunch with this guy who was a pastor because I told him, you know, that was something the Lord was laying on my heart and I wanted to get his input. And the guy said, well, you know, going to seminary is really important because there you learn homiletics and hermeneutics and theology. And I just kind of st- stared at him and went, oh, hermeneutics, very, Herman who? You know, I, I guess maybe some Bible experts. I had no idea what hermeneutics was. I can't spell it. The, the, the highfalutin term hermeneutics really just means the art and science of proper biblical interpretation, how you're going to interpret the Bible. Uh, you know, the, the best way to describe what hermeneutics is all about is to have, uh, in a sense, a, a map, a series of guidelines 
that keeps you on track in terms of understanding what the message of the Bible is all about. The goal of proper biblical interpretation, we are to study to show ourselves approved, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, The word rightly dividing here literally means cutting it straight. Well, how do we know we're cutting it straight? Well, that's where uh, hermeneutics comes in. There's some principles that we apply looking at the Bible that allow us not to read into the Bible, but to best read out of the Bible. Uh, The first principle of hermeneutics is that the Bible should be interpreted literally. Now, when I say literally, I don't mean woodenly. Uh, You know, for instance, when Jesus said, I am the door, that doesn't mean we should expect to find a doorknob on him. Uh, We take a look at what the passage is saying, what kind of literature we're looking at, whether it's poetry, whether it's prophecy, whether it's history, whether it's biography, whether it's a uh, letter that is exhorting uh, believers in Christ. And we, first of all, determine what kind of literature we're looking at here. And we allow the literature in its context to be able to speak. So that's the first principle of hermeneutics, that we look at the Bible literally, we see what kind of literature we're looking at, and then uh, allow the Scripture to speak accordingly. There are sections of Scripture that are quite symbolic. There are uh, sections of Scripture that are quite literal, quite historical, and we don't want to get those things confused. So that's, that's the first thing. The other thing is, how do you interpret the Bible literally. Well, you know, the other steps along these lines is we take a look at a passage and we look at it in its grammatical, historical, and scriptural background. And and, and what I mean by that is this. When we look at the grammar that's involved in a particular passage, that's why sometimes we will say things like, in the Greek, this particular verb means, say, for instance, something that was already completed in the past. It doesn't mean it's an ongoing thing. For instance, in uh, the book of uh, Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 28, uh, the famous passage, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God or are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And these he also glorified. Now notice all those statements have the letter D on the end of them in English. That means it was something that happened in the past. But in the original language, it's even more specific. It's the aorist tense in Greek, which means something that is over and completed in the past. It's not something that started in the past and is still going on today. It's something that God has already done. Well, that's fantastic uh, when you take a look at uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 because it says something. We're already glorified as far as God is concerned. As far as God is concerned, it's like we're already there in heaven with him. So, you know, that's where the, the grammatical, historical, in other words, we take a look at the history behind it all. We look at what's going on in terms of uh, the, the environment in which uh, this particular passage is being spoken about. And uh, then we start taking a look at at the literal sense. The other principle of hermeneutics that we always have to keep in mind is this. The Bible is a self-interpreting book. In other words, although it is 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages, uh, its message agrees because God is the ultimate author of it all. And God does not contradict himself. So when we take a look at a particular passage of Scripture and we come down with a take about what this particular passage is saying, 
we allow the Bible to verify that take. In other words, is my take on one particular issue going to contradict what the Bible clearly teaches on the same subject in other passages? A principle of, of, of hermeneutics, of cutting it straight, is that the clear teaching of Scripture always supersedes the obscure teaching of Scripture. A clear verse is always going to have precedence over a verse that, well, maybe isn't as clear as that clearer verse. And so we use the clearer verses to interpret passages that might seem a little bit obscure to us at particular levels. But those are the main principles of, of hermeneutics. Anything you'd add, you'd add to that, John? No, just make sure that when you're handling the Bible, it would be the same way you would any other book, but also take into consideration it is a very ancient book, and it is written with a different culture and setting than our own. It'd be the same standards we apply to any other work, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of people get intimidated whenever you bring up a religious text, so they think, oh, that's too uh, holy for me. No, just read it, just understand it, just treat it like you would anything else. but take into consideration other factors that uh, wouldn't be applied to a 21st century American book. Yeah, and and one of the reasons why it's important to know what hermeneutics is, I mean, the word hermeneutics comes from the Greek word, literally meaning to understand through something. That's what it it literally means. Uh, But removing the highfalutin language from it, it's really important. You know, I I think about a a family dinner I sat down at uh, where uh, my uncle and some of my cousins were there along with my family, my direct family. And, uh, you know, my mom was just bringing out, uh, you know, the great uh, roast beef that she makes, you know, with the green beans and the mashed potatoes. And we were all looking forward to having a wonderful meal together. And uh, my uncle uh, asked me, uh, so what are you studying uh, in, uh, in seminary? these days. Uh, I've never known anyone went to seminary. What do you study? So I answered in what I thought was the most seeker-sensitive, friendly way I could possibly answer it. I said, well, what I'm studying is how to understand the message of the Bible and make it as accessible to people as I possibly can. I mean, who could possibly disagree with that? Well, One of my cousins did. She threw about an eight-day fit. She said, what? No one can understand what the message of the Bible is. You know, it's all just your your own interpretation. And and I said, well, no, actually, you can understand what the message of the Bible is if you look at it in its historical context and in its literal context. If you take a look at the original languages, you can actually understand what it says. Uh, you know, the vast majority of it is very, very clear. Like, no, nobody can understand. And I mean, it just turned into this eight-day Donnybrook fit. And we all kind of sat there and, you know, we had our mailox moment and suddenly the roast beef didn't look as uh, nice as, as, as it did a few minutes beforehand. You know, the reason why it's important for us to understand hermeneutics is because there's so many people who say, oh, well, yeah, that's just your interpretation. You ever heard that one? Oh, well, everybody's got an interpretation. You got an interpretation. They got an interpretation. All God's children got an interpretation. Well, that might be true, but understand something. God meant something when he inspired the writers of the Bible. The key isn't to get the Bible to agree with what my take is. The key is to, as closely as possible, get to what the original intent of the author writing was, and so be able to understand what God's intention was in understanding that book. You know, again, I'm an author. I've had a few books published, and it's fascinating to me uh, to read, like, reviews of the books that I've written where people completely miss the point, where they say, well, this is what he was trying to say, and I'm like, uh, you know, well, if they'd asked me, I could have cleared all that up. 
Um, you know, so, you know, it isn't like, well, you know, when it comes to the book Reasonable Doubts, you've got an interpretation and I've got an interpretation. They're all equally valid. No, if you come to me, I'll say, this is what I meant to say. And I can speak authoritatively on that. Why? Because I'm the author. <laughs> so in the same way, that, that's what uh, biblical interpretation is all about. Great question, Zach. I hope that helps you out. All right. Um, here's a question from Casey who wants to know, can you explain the primary reason we go to church to draw near to Jesus and to know him better? It's an opening suggestion. I think the most straightforward uh, definition of the purpose of church is in Hebrews 10. Uh, let me read the whole passage so we understand the point that's being made. Therefore, that is in light of the fact that uh, the uh, sin offering we receive from Jesus is totally complete, that nothing is going to substitute it. Right. He says, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's speaking of the inner sanctum of the temple. So presence of God stuff going yeah. on here. Yeah. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is what separated the curtain between the holy and the holy of holies, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, obviously speaking to Hebrew audience, they're picking up on all this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So starting with that holding fast to the reasons we have to trust him. And this is where we get into the church uh, system. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So um, I guess the word would be uh, exhortation, encouraging godly behavior. Right. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, so actual physical presence and interaction there. Zoom calls do not substitute this, <laughs> as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So encouraging good works, the sort of godly living and exercise of spiritual gifts that we all have, and you get a good list of those in First Corinthians 12 through 14, the assembling of one another— and not forsaking that. So encouraging physical interaction, the ability to speak to and interact with people who share our like-mindedness, which, by the way, is what church means, a gathering of like-minded people. Uh, you can find the term, um, is it? I, I won't anticipate. I've made assumptions in this broadcast that have definitely destroyed my credibility, so you'll have to check up on me. But um, nonetheless, the word is being expressed, a gathering of people. You can have a lot of churches in the ancient world that had nothing to do with the God of Israel. The term church just means a gathering of like-minded people. But for that purpose is where comfort and where the practice of spiritual gifts in a safer environment can be done. And then, of course, exhorting one another. What, what does that word mean? Especially in light of the return of the Lord. Yeah, well, the idea is uh, put feet to your faith. You know, don't have a, a faith that's just on your lips. Make sure your faith is being worked out within your life. And, uh, you know, we are to rub off on one another, encouraging one another uh, to, uh, to, to know, first of all, we're not alone in this struggle that we have in this world. Boy, if there's one thing that we've learned in the time of the pandemic is that isolation really is deadly. Uh, you know, you get cut off from people. And even though we live in this uh, plugged-in multimedia, you know, internet culture, there's just something about human contact uh, face-to-face personally that uh, the internet simply can't provide. So, you know, so important for us, you know, like uh, I think it was Woody Allen once said that he felt 90% of success was showing up. 
The rest of it's just being there. Yeah, and uh, you know, so you know, I I think ninety percent of being edified and really built up in our walk with God is showing up. You know, being there among God's people and you know sharing the spiritual gifts that we have and allowing people to share those gifts with us. Like the old saying about uh, joy, that a, a joy shared is twice a joy and a grief shared is half a grief. Uh, that's where we get to interact. Uh, we get to see God's love serve family style when we come to the church. You know, one thing I would add uh, to that, uh, as far as a definition of what church is all about, boy, I just like to go back to Acts chapter 2. Uh, I think this is uh, what the church was all about uh, in its purest form. In verse 42, right after Pentecost, right after 3,000 men, not counting women and children, gave their lives to Christ, we are told they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, I like that because I think that is a great working definition of what God wants to see among his people. Uh, He said, uh, first, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The teaching of God's word was front and center in the church. They didn't deviate from that, no matter what kind of cultural uh, uh, pushes might be going that way. Fellowship, koinonia, that is having things in common with one another, being together with other people who know and love the Lord. Boy, you know, like the old analogy, you know, if you've got a fire burning in the fireplace with three logs burning, those three logs burning together are going to burn brightly. You take one of those logs away and put it on the hearth, it's going to go out pretty quick. So we need that fellowship, that koinonia. The breaking of bread and in prayers. The breaking of bread can refer to, obviously, remembering the Lord in the ordinance of communion, focusing in on the uh, death and sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. But bringing a bread also indicated the idea of sharing meals with one another. In Jewish culture, you shared a meal with one another. It, it meant you were saying you were family. And so that, that sense of family connectedness. And notice in prayers, plural, that meant there were times for corporate prayer in the church. There was times where people in the church would be encouraged to pray individually. We could say that uh, a worship time uh, would be a time where we are praying. One of the things that we try to emphasize, even in terms of song choice at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, is we want to make sure that our songs that we sing are upward in focus. It's us expressing our hearts to God, not just talking about, uh, say, the horizontal. That's not to say that those songs don't have their place in terms of building up and edifying us. You can turn on K-Love or you know, K-Wave or any other uh, station you want to listen to and get some of those hymns like you know, Amazing Grace that do talk about the horizontal aspect of things. But because uh, part and parcel of the church gathering together are prayers, we try to emphasize, even in the songs that we sing, expressing our hearts upward uh, toward God. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. As we gather together as, as a body of believers, uh, we should have an increasing sense of awe and respect for God and who he is. We should expect the Holy Spirit to move and minister in ways that are unexpected, even miraculous. If we need a miracle, we certainly have one. It says, now, those who believed were together and they had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among others as any had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily 
those who were being saved. Uh, the, the only other detail I'd add to that is uh, Chuck Smith always used to say that uh, the, the best sign of a church that's hitting on all cylinders is that healthy sheep are going to reproduce. That is, uh, we're not just going to form a clique club where we keep all those awful worldly people out. We get built up in our, our walk with God so we can go out into the world and be a witness for Christ, lead other people to the Lord, bring them into the body, disciple them up, and then send them out with that same vision. All right. Um, quick, uh, real quick question from Kevin who wants to know about our uh, app. His uh, old one isn't working. Um, not sure why, but the present one I checked on my phone just now. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship should work if you're on the, uh, uh, the Samsung yeah, yeah. Uh, Play Store. Should be able to provide that for you. I don't think it would be differently on the uh, Apple Store, but it should be under that. If you want to verify the logo, it's got a maroon background with a more black uh, faded look and a white Calvary dove. If uh, you don't know what any of that means, just make sure C-A-L-V-A-R-Y is spelled properly. You should be okay with the first one that came up on my list. And then uh, finishing up, a uh, question from Zach who wants to know the biblical meaning of the Christmas song uh, regarding Do You See What I See? Um, he mentions the YouTube ministry. I have done a few uh, biblical analyzing of song lyrics, but uh, not intentionally Christian ones, uh, more along the lines of secular songs, but that can communicate a very solid Christian message and some not so subtle. Uh, but the song Do You See What I See? I believe that was written in the 60s. Um, just uh, basically a summaris- uh, summarization of Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2, uh, specifically in referencing the wise men from the east in Matthew 2. Let us bring him silver and gold. That was that reference to a star, a star in the east. That's what guided them from the faraway lands of the uh, Nabataean Empire. But also note as well, um, in Luke chapter 2, in the more significant, it starts with the lamb, it goes to the shepherd boy, and then to the king. Let us bring him silver and gold. Uh, not uh, copied and pasted out of the Bible, obviously. I don't think... Yeah, that... the king at that time was King Herod. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, not, not the guy that was really interested in bringing him silver and gold. And uh, <laughs> also note, uh, sheep wasn't the first one to communicate to the shepherds. They didn't miss the memo when the angels appeared in the sky. But uh, We're going to talk about all this on Friday. Yeah. 5 o'clock and 6.30... Christmas Eve service, write it down, be there, invite a friend. But yeah, uh, read the Gospel of John chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, and Luke chapter 2 in their entireties, and then look at the song lyrics, you'll note the references. Uh, again, it's a little fanciful, it's not intended to be a Bible study, but it is biblical. It's like the little drummer boy, yeah. probably never happened, but it's kind of a nice song. It's a set in the setting that we can verify historically, and if you want more information on that, look up the uh, evidence for Luke chapter 2, J. Warner Wallace, Lee Strobel, uh, um, and I believe we've done a study on that too as far as the uh, background information on that. So let us know if that helps you out. Yeah, our our, uh, Christmas Eve service, uh, we're going to have a, because it's a family service and so on, we're going to have a uh, condensed but I think very powerful study on Luke chapter 2 and the message that the angel shared with the shepherds that night. So really looking forward to that. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.